In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the Lord spoke heaven and earth into being. God's word transformed the chaos of a formless void into distinct places, each with its own set purpose. These places would be home for the creatures that he would also speak into being. The creative words of God that open the book of Genesis are part of the Torah, the life-giving teaching of God spoken to Israel so that they too would become a special place with a distinct purpose. They were to become a home for God to dwell in. Exodus is the second book of the Torah, which we Christians call the Pentateuch. Usually, we think of Torah as Old Testament law. The understanding of Torah as life-giving instruction is one we Christians might want to embrace as we seek to form better relationships with the Jewish children of Abraham. It is wonderfully supportive also of our unshakable faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the incarnation of the Word of God. While that theology seems to be derived directly from the Gospel of John, it can be reasonably claimed that the Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the incarnation of Torah in its purest sense. There is more than one parallel relationship between the creation of Israel in Exodus and the creation of the world in Genesis. In his commentary on Exodus, Terence Fretheim sees a significant connection in the worship of the golden calf in Exodus 32 and the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. The worship of the golden calf is a rejection of God's creative intentions in the same way eating the forbidden fruit rejects God's creative intentions. The fall of Israel is even more disastrous in that the creation of Israel is key to God's attempt to once again abide as the central presence in human society and relationships. I would like to invite us to approach Mount Sinai with a greater sense of appreciation for its merit within the Jewish tradition. For whatever limitations we see in the Mosaic Law when we compare it with the grace we have received from Christ as the Word of God, we must also respect the Law's divine nature as an instrument given by God. God gave the law to Israel because of his great love for Israel, and its purpose was to bring them as a people into a very special relationship with God. As we read Exodus, the glory of the God who is making this covenant with them is so great that it has to be hidden behind a cloud. God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, but not even Moses is given a full, direct view of God. The glory of God is so awesome that human flesh cannot bear it. The hidden nature of God frightens the people. It also leaves them suspecting that this God might be a God completely out of their control, which, of course, God is. In the nature religions that surrounded Israel, there were many pantheons of gods that were worshipped. Not only was Israel to worship just one God, but the way they worshiped God was to be different as well. Among their polytheistic neighbors, worship was dedicated to keeping the gods happy so that they wouldn't abandon the people to drought or flood or fire or plague or something worse. Worship of these gods was a carefully orchestrated attempt at appeasing them, of controlling their all-too-human-like irascibility. 
The worshipers of these gods needed to have something that could be seen and touched as the very presence of any particular god. The people needed something concrete to assist in the belief that their gods were accessible to them. So far as we have come in Exodus, the God Moses was responsible for revealing to Israel was only accessible to them through Moses. The people wanted more control over this relationship with God. So with Moses away up on the mountain communing with an inaccessible God, they asked their high priest Aaron to free them from Moses' religious tyranny and give them a God they can deal with. Aaron obliges them. Yes, the people make an offering of their gold jewelry, which he melts into the shape of a calf, a very common figure for gods that represent robust strength and bountiful harvests. In the opinion of many scholars, Aaron was attempting to give the Israelites an image of Yahweh rather than trying to give them a completely different God to believe in. But Aaron did this at the very moment Yahweh is revealing the Ten Commandments to Moses. Whether Aaron has given Israel a new God or attempted to make an image of the one true God, it is an abominable violation of what is, by Catholic reckoning, the very first commandment God reveals to Moses. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not have other gods beside me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of anything in the heavens above, or on the earth below, or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or serve them. The immediate results could not be more disastrous for Israel. God tells Moses to leave the mountain. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, because your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way I commanded them, making for themselves a molten calf and bowing down to it, sacrificing to it and crying out, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are, continued the Lord to Moses. Let me alone then, that my anger may burn against them to consume them. Then I will make of you a great nation. God is apparently willing to start from scratch, creating a new nation to bear his presence in the world solely from the offspring of Moses. Israel has committed apostasy, and God seems to be setting before Moses two possible responses. One is to completely destroy Israel, to be utterly done with them as a people. The other is to let some of them live, but to refuse to lead them into the promised land and to never dwell among them. Fortunately for Israel, Moses refuses God's request. Moses does not leave God alone. Before we get to Moses' response to God's anger, however, there is something more about the Torah we would do well to consider. The late Old Testament scholar Lawrence Boat taught that there was an important key to unlocking some of the mysteries we are often confronted with in reading Exodus or any other book of the Pentateuch. Our big mystery right now is the purpose in Exodus for this disturbing account of Israel's apostasy at the very moment God is attempting to bind them to his heart in a sacred, life-giving covenant. How historical is this account of Israel's worship of the golden calf while Moses is on the mountain 
taking dictation from God concerning the architecture of the tent of worship. Bode and many other scholars tell us that the Pentateuch was refined over a long period of time and was influenced by a variety of theological perspectives. By the time it reached its present form under divine inspiration, the Pentateuch had become shaped in such a way that the Jewish people of any period of time and from within almost any possible historical circumstance could find themselves being directly addressed by God from Torah. Exodus is Israel's memory of how God delivered Israel and sealed the covenant with Israel that is crowned by the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments that are the core moral teaching of the entire Bible and one might add of Western civilization. The importance of this covenant to Israel was so great that the manner of its transmission to Israel transcends the limitations of history. It is depicted literarily as coming directly from God to Moses on a mountain shrouded in cloud and shaking with the thunder of God's presence. The historical details concerning the manner of its communication, however, are of far less importance than the theological fact of its communication. The clouds, the thunder, the quaking earth all tell us that God delivered the Torah to Israel, God whose glory is by all accounts unapproachable by mortal humans. This covenant is timeless. History is about time. The covenant is about all time. This also makes God's covenant with the Jewish people unbreakable. As Pope John Paul II affirmed to a mostly Jewish audience in Mainz, Germany in 1980. A timeless covenant is a covenant that is delivered not just once and for all at a set moment in history. A timeless covenant is one that is continuously communicated to the people of the covenant in every time and in any place they find themselves. Since Exodus is the record of God's timeless covenant with the Jewish people, it should not surprise us that the words that describe the event in which it was communicated are something that cannot be constrained by strictly historical concerns. Exodus has been deliberately crafted in such a fashion that Israelites during the reign of King Solomon, as well as Jews returning to Judah from the Babylonian captivity centuries later, would both hear themselves being directly addressed by Exodus. With the dedication of the temple built by King Solomon, God's glory fills the house of worship and the presence of God in Israel's midst seems undeniable. Every blessing of God seems abundantly present. Even the king seems momentarily to be living in perfect harmony with God's will, having been given the gift of wisdom to rule in God's stead. Any who find themselves in such a moment of harmony with God can look to the covenant proclaimed in the Exodus as the foundation for their joy. But there is another moment, a far more painful moment in covenant relationship with God that is also addressed by Exodus. This is the moment of punishment for apostasy, the experience of exile and slavery in a foreign land that happened long after Moses, as many as 400 years or more after King David, when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, the temple, and drove the people of Judah into Babylon as slaves of the empire. This tragic event in Israel's life is woven into the story of Israel's birth here in Exodus, 
so that the Jews of the Babylonian or any other exile can find hope in their covenant with the God of Exodus. At first, God's rejection of Israel over their worship of the golden calf seems permanent. It certainly sounds like bad news from an oppressive God in our modern ears, but a deep reading of our current lesson in Exodus actually proclaims a very positive message to those who suffer and endure exile, even if it is perceived as punishment for rejecting God. When Moses goes down from Sinai in Exodus chapter 32, verses 15 through 20, and witnesses Israel's apostasy, he breaks the stone tablet on which God has written the Ten Commandments. The stone tablet is the very heart of what was supposed to be God's covenant with Israel. Now it is broken, and all that God has done for Israel seems at this point to be for naught. At this moment, Israel seems to have ceased to be God's people. But in successive steps, through the intercession of Moses, God's wrath is abated and the covenant itself is renewed. The people are certainly punished. 3,000 die by the sword, executed by Levite priests under orders from Moses. But it is also Moses who stands in the gap between God and the people and brings the two back into covenant relationship. Even though Moses has executed a severe punishment upon the people, he turns to God and begs God's forgiveness of them, even if God should demand Moses' own life. Moses' love of God's people is greater than his love of life itself. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Ah, this people has committed a grave sin in making a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if you will not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. God responds to Moses' intercession by assuring him that Israel will not be utterly abandoned. The people will be allowed to enter the promised land. This is a far cry from destroying them, but the greatest blessing of all is still to be withheld. I will send an angel before you, to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I myself will not go up in your company because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might consume you on the way. The Lord seems to be at his wit's end with this people. God has to step aside from Israel, telling them, let me think what to do with you. Apparently, what God thinks over is his relationship with Moses. However estranged God is from Israel, God is an intimate friend with Moses, and it is Moses who uses his friendship with God to urge the Lord to bring his divine presence back to the people. God calls Moses back up to Mount Sinai and reveals himself to Moses in the greatest theophany of the Old Testament. While Moses is not actually allowed to see the face of God, which would kill Moses, he does catch a glimpse of God's great glory, a glimpse we are able to catch in the words of God's spoken self-revelation. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love and fidelity, continuing his love for a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet not declaring the guilty guiltless. Moses responds to God's revelation by once again interceding 
on behalf of the people. If I find favor with you, Lord, please, Lord, come along in our company. This is indeed a stiff-necked people, yet pardon our wickedness and sins and claim us as your own. Through Moses' intercession, God once again renews the covenant with Israel. This is not only good news for the Israelites in the Sinai wilderness, it was wonderful news to the Jews of the Babylonian exile. They too had been punished nearly to death for their apostasy, but they too were forgiven and would return to the promised land. They too would rebuild a dwelling place for God, a temple of worship according to the covenant God had made with them through Moses. And what is the message here for Christians in the 21st century? Certainly as Christians, we can see the parallels between Moses' willingness to have his own name blotted out of the book of life for the sake of his people and Jesus bringing us forgiveness and making us God's people through his sacrificial offering on the cross. We might also consider how our times have become like the time of the Israelites and their apostasy when they worshiped the golden calf. As tempting as it is to see in the golden calf a metaphor for the greed and materialism of our time, I think an even stronger comparison can be made by examining the loss of interest we have in seeking God's presence in our lives. We live in a secular age, an age where life is easily lived and life's goals are largely pursued without any reference to God or religion. While this is probably not true for you or me, it is largely true for many in the societies of the Western world. What was once a Christian culture has become a secular culture. How might we respond to this? Is God perhaps at a loss for what to do? Is God thinking over his response to our godless age? It is not physical punishment, not death by the sword or by famine or plague, that we are to fear. The great punishment, the great loss that is inflicted on those who neither know nor seek God's presence is that they miss knowing that most mysterious yet most life-giving presence of all. I believe we should take courage from God's presence in our lives, from the glory of God's presence we glimpse in our worship, by which we are nourished in sacred scripture and receive in Holy Eucharist. Vatican II told us that we are the church and that the church is the sacrament of God's presence in the world. If the world has lost a sense of God's presence, let them not lose a sense of our presence, a presence that is to be understood as Christ's own, bringing God's love, God's healing, God's forgiveness, and God's welcome into the world.